Well, once again, good morning, everybody. It's so good to see all of you. Good stuff this morning, huh? Good stuff this morning. Hey, as we get prepared to open up God's word, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much, uh, Lord, just for this time of worship, Father, just the time to sing praises to you because you are, you are so worth it, Father. And we thank you for this Sunday and this uh, chance we get to meet together, God. We thank you for the week that we're headed into. And I think just the opportunity it gives us to pause and reflect a little bit more on your son Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us so that we could have eternal life. And we thank you for that. And Father, as we now turn your attention to our attention to your word, God, and what you would have us uh, learn here this morning, God, I just pray that you would speak through me, God. I pray that my words would be yours. I pray that as, as, as I, uh, your truth is proclaimed, that your Holy Spirit would do his work and he would just change our hearts, God. And so we give this time over to you and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. We are continuing our series through the book of Daniel. And if you can do two things at once, I'm going to ask you, as you find your place in Daniel chapter 5, we're going to put a phrase on the screen. And this is one of those phrases that I'm asking you to repeat after me. The phrase is the following. It's put on the screen. It's what God has written, God will accomplish. What God has written, God will accomplish. So we're going to break this phrase down and repeat after me. Okay, are you ready? Ready? What God has written. Brothers and sisters. Did I say, say it with me, or did I say repeat after me? I, I think I said repeat after me, right? Okay, so let's try this again. You ready? Repeat after me. What God has written, what God, has written God, will accomplish. God will accomplish. Again, what God has written, what God, has written God, will accomplish. God will accomplish. One more time for good measure. What God has written, what God, has written God will accomplish. There is both a challenging aspect to that truth right there, and there is a comforting aspect to that truth right there. And today, we're going to see both of those, okay? As I said, we are continuing our series in, in the book of Daniel, and today we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 5. And as I was studying this passage this, this past week in preparation for this message, I came across a little bit of an interesting challenge. And the challenge that I came across is I realized as I was studying this passage that I, I think sort of the main lesson, the main point of what we're looking at today is, is actually, it's pretty much the same as what we looked at last week. If you were here last week, you know that we talked on, on the dangers of pride, right? As we saw the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think in many ways, this passage in Daniel chapter 5 is also a passage warning us about the dangers of pride. And when I realized that, initially I was really excited because I know not everybody comes to church every weekend. So I thought, I'll just preach the same message this weekend that I preached last weekend. But then I realized my problem with that is that Pastor Matthew is here this weekend. And I don't want him to hear that story that I told about him last weekend. And I can tell by some of your laughters or your smiles, I can tell who was not here this last weekend. Some of you just gave yourself away. But I don't want Matthew to hear that story because I don't want him to get a big head and be prideful. So I decided rather than preach the same message I preached last weekend, I'm going to look at this passage today from a slightly different angle. Okay, I'm going to look at this passage from a slightly different perspective. If you remember back to the first week in our series through the book of Daniel, one of the things that I said in, in that first week is I said that I really believe each book of the Bible contributes something unique to our understanding of God and who God is. And I said that week, and what I really think the book of Daniel contributes better than anybody, any other book of the Bible, is it teaches us about what theologians call the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. 
Uh, the utter incontrolness, to uh, coin a phrase, the utter in-chargeness of God over the circumstances here on this earth. And as I said that first week, I, I find the doctrine of the sovereignty of God one of the most comforting doctrines. I love that doctrine, and I believe in it very, very strongly. But here's what I want to say today, okay? If some of you here struggle with that idea, if you struggle with the idea that God is always in charge, if you struggle with the idea that God is always in control, what I want to let you know here today is, is I get it, okay? I get those who struggle with that idea. And the reason I get it is because, let's be honest, it doesn't always look like that, does it? It doesn't always look like God is in control. I mean, think back to this past week, right? What were some of the major news stories that dominated the news this past week? You had those bombings in Austin, right? Those male bombings in Austin. There was another school shooting in Maryland which claimed the lives of two people. Uh, kind of the major news story was, was really the indiscretions of our president, the, the, the affairs of our president. I mean, you look at all these things, and, and it doesn't always look like God is in charge, does it? You look at all that's happening, and it looks as though if God is indeed the sovereign king of the universe, that there are large portions of his kingdom that he has sort of lost control over. I mean, simply put, there's a lot of evil that is going on around in our world. There's a lot of wrong things that are going on in our world that doesn't always make sense if God is indeed the one who is sovereign over everything. And for those of us who really strongly believe this particular truth, I think even in us we feel a tension, right? How can we say that God is sovereign? How can we say that God is in control and not turn a blind eye to a world at times that seems to be spiraling out of control? How can we say that God is in charge and yet see, not, not see all these things that are going on in this world that, that we have to know that God doesn't approve of? If God is indeed sovereign, why doesn't it always look like it? Why doesn't it always look like it? Well, today I want to share with you a few thoughts from the Bible on that particular issue. And I want to use our, our passage in Daniel chapter 5 to do that. Uh, let's begin in verse 1 of Daniel chapter 5. I want to read the, the first four verses of this particular passage. This is what we read. Daniel chapter 5 verse 1. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. We'll stop right there. And for those of you who like to mark your Bibles, uh, you may want to know that next to the first four verses of Daniel chapter 5, I have written just one word, and that is the word evil. It's the word evil, because that's what we're seeing in the first four verses of Daniel chapter 5. We are seeing an act of evil. The backdrop for this story that we're looking at today actually takes us all the way back to our, our first message in this series. It takes us back to Daniel chapter 1. And if you remember that, that first message again, in Daniel chapter 1, we were introduced to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king over the Babylonian empire. And we learn in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, that, that in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, he goes to Jerusalem, the capital of the nation of Israel, and he besieges it, he attacks it. And one of the things that we're told in Daniel chapter 1 is that King Nebuchadnezzar orders his men, he orders his troops to march into the temple in Jerusalem, to march into God's house in Jerusalem, and to steal some of the artifacts, to steal some, some of the objects from God's temple, and, and to bring them back to Babylon some 500 miles away so that he can keep them in the temple of one of his own gods in Babylon. 
And that's the backdrop for this particular story. When we get to Daniel chapter 5, we find out something interesting. We find out that King Nebuchadnezzar is actually no longer king over the Babylonian people. And as we read on in Daniel chapter 5, what we learn is that King Nebuchadnezzar has died. He has passed away. And just so you know, that, what that means is that when we get to Daniel chapter 5 in, in the book of Daniel, we have jumped forward a little bit in time. In fact, history tells us that there's probably at the very least 23 years between the end of Daniel chapter 4 and the beginning of Daniel chapter 5. So we have jumped forward in time. And there is a new king that has taken over the Babylonian empire, and his name is King Belshazzar. And as we read throughout Daniel chapter 5, we see, as we might expect, that King Belshazzar is related to King Nebuchadnezzar. Throughout Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is called his father. History tells us, uh, on the other hand, however, that, that Nebuchadnezzar was actually probably the grandfather of Belshazzar, and Belshazzar was his grandson. Now, for those of us who, who believe that the Bible is without error, just so you know, that does not cause a problem for us. And the reason why is because in the ancient world, the terms father and son were very fluid terms that could mean a number of different things. In the Bible, for example, Abraham is called our father. I am a son of Abraham. So they were very fluid terms. And father and son could also be used to mean grandfather and grandson, great-grandfather and great-grandson, and so on. And so Belshazzar is, is probably the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. And as our story opens up, he is throwing a party. We're told surrounded by uh, concubines, surrounded by his wives, surrounded by a thousand of the most esteemed guests in Babylon. Belshazzar is throwing what the kids these days call a rager, okay? He is throwing a wild party. And I just want to let you know that I'm hip with the language of the kids these days. So he is throwing this wild party. And, and in the midst of this party, probably a little bit drunk, or honestly, probably a lot drunk, Belshazzar makes what is ultimately a fatal mistake. What Belshazzar does, we're told, is Belshazzar takes some of these objects that his grandfather stole that were in this temple in Babylon. And, and apparently among these objects that Nebuchadnezzar stole were goblets, were cups that were probably used in some sort of ritual somehow in the temple in Jerusalem. And he takes them out of storage and he distributes them among his guests. And we're told that wine is placed in them, people get drunk off them, and worst of all, Belshazzar orders that these goblets be used to toast the gods of the Babylonian Empire. And when you, this is all put together, men and women, this is an act of evil. Okay, it's an act of evil. These objects were the most holy. They were the most sacred objects here on this earth at this time. They were God's property. They were God's possessions. And here we see some of the holiest objects on the earth at this time being used in a completely profane, perverse way. Here we see some of the most sacred objects on the earth at this time being used in sacrilegious ways. And by showing contempt for the things of God, what Belshazzar is really doing here is he is showing contempt for God himself. He is shaking his fist at God. He is challenging God, okay? And so no matter how you look at it, this is an act of evil. Pure and simple, this is an act of evil. And the reason I make that point is because as we think of this issue of, of the sovereignty of God, the in-controlness of God, and the evil that we see on this earth, sort of the first thought that I want to share with you, the first observation that I want to share with you is this, and it's going to knock your socks off, okay? But the first thought I want to share with you is this, evil is nothing new. Are you blown away by that statement? But there it is, evil is nothing new. 
I know that may not be all that comforting, but it's true. And it's actually a very important thing to recognize. Because it's not as though, men and women, it's not as though the Bible affirms the sovereignty of God and completely ignores the evil in this world. It's not as though the Bible talks about God's sovereignty and then it was only after the Bible was completed that evil started to develop here on this earth. No, the Bible absolutely affirms God's sovereignty and it absolutely affirms the evil that we see in this world. Evil is nothing new. Throughout history, people have shaken their fist at God. Throughout history, people have set themselves up against God. Some people have done it very obviously and flagrantly like Belshazzar does in this passage. And they very obviously and flagrantly shake their fist at God. I'm thinking today especially of those atheists who go on TV and, and they declare that God is not great and God is dead and God doesn't exist and so on. Some people do it very openly and flagrantly. Most people, however, most people do it a lot more subtly. They shake their fist at God by just ignoring him and by ignoring his commands and by ignoring the morality that God puts down in his words and going their own way and following their own commands and their own morality. But, but basically, as long as human beings have existed on this earth, evil has existed. And the Bible affirms that. Evil is nothing new. And so as we look to the pages of Scripture, and we try and find out how the Bible makes sense of the sovereignty of God and the evil that we see in this earth, there's a few reasons, there's a few things that the Bible says about that. But one of the most interesting things for me is, is what, something that is said in the New Testament. It's something that's said in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1. And in fact, if you want, we won't spend too long there, but you can turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Hold your place in Daniel 5 because we'll come back there. But you can turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And I would encourage you, if you get, you know, 15, 20 minutes this week, I would encourage you to sit down and, and to read Romans chapter 1. Because you'll find a lot of interesting things in this chapter. But one of the interesting things in this chapter is what Paul says starting in verse 18. Of Romans chapter 1. And starting in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, Paul says the following, and we'll put this on the screen. He says, uh, Romans 1.18, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and the wickedness of people. Now, what is Paul saying in that verse? Well, I think Paul is saying a few things here. One of the things that Paul is saying is Paul is saying that God absolutely sees the evil that is on this earth. God absolutely sees and knows about and is not ignorant of the evil that we see on this earth. As it says at the end of that verse, God sees the godlessness and the wickedness of people. God sees the evil on this earth. God saw the evil that happened in Austin this past week. God sees the mass shootings that happened in our nation. If you right now are suffering evil at the hands of another person, I want you to know that, that God absolutely sees it, that. And actually, what this verse tells us is not only does God see that, but God is doing something about it. What this verse tells us is that God is in the process of punishing that evil. God is punishing the godlessness and the wickedness of this earth. As it says there, the wrath of God, the anger of God, is being revealed against this evil. It's being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness on this earth. God is punishing the evil that we see on this earth. And that's a good thing. Because we want God to do something about the evil on this earth. So absolutely, God is doing something about it. But here's where it gets interesting, okay? I think that when a lot of Christians think about the wrath of God, if you've been introduced to that before, 
I think where a lot of Christians go straight to is they go straight to things like tornadoes and hurricanes and sort of cataclysmic events, disastrous events that happen here on this earth. But as you read on in Romans chapter 1, you will see that when Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed, he talks about it in a different way. It's being revealed in a different way than we might think. What you will see as you read on in Romans chapter 1 is you will see that Paul uses this same phrase three times in five verses. And just so you know, whenever you're studying your Bible and you see a word or a phrase repeated over and over and over again in a short amount of time, pay attention to that because that was biblical authors' way of underlining something. That was their way of bolding something. That was their way of emphasizing something. And three times in five verses... Paul uses this same phrase, and the phrase is, God gave them over. God gave them over. In Romans chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, God gave them over to their sinful desires. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26, you'll see that Paul says, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Over and over and over again, Paul says, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And what Paul is saying in that is this. He's saying that one of the ways that God's wrath sometimes is revealed against the evil in this world is that when people or nations, when they shake their fist at God, and when they say to God, God, we don't want anything to do with you, you know what God does? God gives people what they want. God gives people what they want. In a sense, God allows people to suffer the consequences of their actions. You know, my son Lucas right now is four years old. And so one of the things that we're trying to teach him is we're trying to teach him that actions have consequences. We're trying to show him that. And so, for example, if he, if he really fights us in eating lunch, and then he's hungry later on in the day, we're trying to make the connection, Lucas, the reason why you're hungry is because you didn't eat lunch. Lucas, the reason why your stomach hurts is because you had too much candy. Lucas, the reason why you're tired is because you keep on getting up at 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> no one told me when we were having kids that they come into this world as vampires who don't like to sleep. It's just incredible. But that's besides the point. You get my point, right? As we grow up in this life, one of the things that we learn is we learn that actions have consequences. Well, what Paul says is God shows the world the same thing. You know, one of the greatest things that God does for us, uh, human beings, men and women, I don't think we're always aware of it, but one of the greatest things that I think God does for us is God protects us from ourselves. God protects us from the evil that is in the hearts of human beings. You know, in the book of Thessalonians, it says that one of the things that God does in this world is God restrains evil. God puts a check on the amount of evil that can occur in this world. But, but, but what the Bible tells us, what Paul is telling us, is that we can get to a point where we shake our fist at God so much, where we tell God that we don't want anything to do with him, and God gets to a point where he can say, okay, have it your way. And God removes his protection. God gives us over to ourselves. And candidly, men and women, candidly, I think that's what's going on right now in our nation. Now listen, I, I know there's a lot of good going on in our nation. I'm not, I'm not blind to that. But it just feels, and this is anecdotal, I don't have statistics on this, but it just feels to me 
like in the last five to ten years or so, there has just been this increase in evil and evil actions within our nation. And if you were to pin me down and ask the reason why that is happening, I would say to you, I think it's because God is giving our nation what it's asked for. I think we have made it clear for several years now that we don't want a lot to do with him. And so God is, is giving us what we've asked for. And he's removing his protection. I know I've shared this quote with you before, but, but it speaks directly to what we're talking about. And it's such a powerful quote. Right after September 11, 2001, Ann Graham Lotz, the, the daughter of Billy Graham, she was on a news program. And she was asked on this news program, if God is real, how could he allow something like September 11? And this is what she said. First of all, she said, I say God is angry when he sees something like this. And she is right. God is absolutely angry when he sees the evil in this world. God is angry when he sees something like September 11. God is angry when he sees the wrong things in this world. But then she says this. She said, I would say also that for several years now, Americans in a sense have shaken their fist at God and said, God, we want you out of our schools, our government, our business. We want you out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, has just quietly backed out of our national and political life, our public life, removing his hand of blessing and protection. And I think she's right. A little bit ago, I came across a really interesting study. It's a little bit dated, but I think it's actually even truer today. So in 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court had a very famous decision. And in 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court very famously outlawed prayer in public schools. And along with that then came this outlaw against public school teachers really expressing their faith and talking about Jesus in their classrooms. Well, someone did a really interesting study, a really interesting comparison out of that. And what they did is they compared what public high school teachers and administrators said were the biggest problems they faced in their schools in 1940 when prayer was still allowed in public schools. And they compared that to what public high school teachers and administrators said were the biggest problems that they faced in 1990, 27 years after prayer was outlawed in schools. And the results are so telling. I'll share them with you, okay? In 1940, according to public high school teachers and administrators, the biggest problems that they faced in their schools were this. We'll put it on the screen. It's talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, dress code violations, and littering. Those were the biggest problems in 1940. How quaint, right? Now, 50 years later, 27 years after prayer was outlawed in public school, according to public high school teachers and administrators, these are the biggest problems. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, unwed pregnancy, suicide, robbery, and assault. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, unwed pregnancy, suicide, robbery, and assault. Now, look at those two lists. Now, I'm not saying, men and women, that, that those things in 1990 didn't happen in 1940. Of course they did. They just didn't happen on the scale that they're happening now. And what is going on here? I think God has given us what we've asked for. I think God has given us what we want. And the point that I'm making in all of that, okay, this is the point that I'm making in all this. The point that I'm making in all of this is that as we look at the evil that is in this world, it's not a sign that God has lost control. Actually, believe it or not, it is a sign that God is control in control. It's a sign that God is sovereign over, or over this world, okay? Because God is giving people what they've asked for. It is a sign of God's control. And unfortunately, just so you know, sometimes we Christians are sort of the innocent bystanders of all of this, in a sense. 
that, that we sometimes will, will face the evil of other people because God is giving a nation on the whole what it's asked for. But here's what we also have to realize, okay? There is coming a day when God will say enough to the evil on this world. There is coming a day when God will say that's it to the evil on this earth. And we see a picture of that, I think, in our story back in Daniel. So you can turn with me back to Daniel chapter 5. So King Belshazzar is throwing this party. He's, he's toasting the gods of the Babylonian Empire with, with the possessions of, of God himself, with the objects of God himself. And in the middle of this party, all of a sudden, something extraordinary happens. We're told a hand appears out of nowhere and begins writing on the wall. Verse 5 of Daniel chapter 5, it says, Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So all of a sudden, in the middle of this party, what happens? Just a, a hand appears out of nowhere and it begins writing something on the wall. And we're told that, that King Belshazzar is just scared out of his mind. As it says there, his face becomes pale, his legs become weak, and his knees start knocking. And just so you know, the literal translation of his legs became weak is actually the joints of his loins were loosened. The joints of his loins are loosened. And what some scholars believe that means is that there was a puddle, so to speak, that all of a sudden began to appear under Belshazzar. Okay? Not a very flattering image. I mean, Belshazzar is scared out of his mind, as very well he should be. I think any of us in this room would be afraid if all of a sudden a disembodied hand appeared out of nowhere and started writing something on the wall. Talk about a buzzkill, right? Talk about a sobering experience. And so immediately we're told that Belshazzar goes on a quest to try and find out what, what was written and, and the interpretation, the meaning of what was written. And eventually his quest leads him to Daniel. Now Daniel in this story is probably about 80 years old, so he, he's getting up there, okay? He's a little bit older now. He's a little bit more wise in his years. And so Daniel is about 80 years old, and we're told that Daniel is brought into this party, and he stands before Belshazzar. And the first thing that Daniel does is he launches into this long speech to Belshazzar, and we'll take a look at that speech in just a second. But then at the end of this speech, Daniel gives the interpretation for what was written. Pick it up in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 5. And this is what we read, Daniel 5, verse 25. Daniel says this to Belshazzar. He says, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, or parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So what Daniel tells us here is he tells us that what was written on the wall were four Aramaic words, mene, mene, tekel, parson. And these four words mean something like numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And what Daniel tells us is that what is being conveyed in this is ultimately a message of judgment. It's a message of judgment upon Belshazzar, and it's a message of judgment upon the entire Babylonian kingdom. Mene, Daniel says, means numbered. God has numbered the days of Belshazzar. Belshazzar's life and Belshazzar's reign is going to come to an end. Tekel, Daniel says, means weighed. God has weighed Belshazzar, and Belshazzar has been found wanting. We might say that Belshazzar has not measured up, so to speak. Parson means divided, Daniel says. The Babylonian empire is going to be divided, and it's going to be given to other nations. It is going to come to an end. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. This is a message of judgment upon Belshazzar, and it's a message of judgment upon the Babylonian Empire. 
And that's the interpretation of this. And what happens as a result of this, look with me at verse 30. It says, that very night, you may want to underline that phrase. It says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So what happens? It's exactly what I had you repeat at the beginning. What God has written, God will accomplish. What God has written, God will accomplish. If this is not directly the hand of God that was writing on the wall, it was something that was sent by God. And it's ultimately God's message. It's a prophecy of judgment. And as we read in that passage, that very night, that very night it was fulfilled. That very night Belshazzar was killed. That very night the kingdom of Babylon came to an end and it was split in two and given to other nations. What God has written, God will accomplish. That's what we're seeing in this story. And as I said at the beginning of this message, there's an incredible similarity between this story and last week's story. Because ultimately, what was behind Belshazzar's action here was pride. This was a prideful act. And God is punishing that pride just like he did for Nebuchadnezzar. So there's an incredible similarity between these two stories. But there's also one key difference. And maybe some of you can pick up on that difference. There was something that we saw God do last week for Nebuchadnezzar that he doesn't seem to do for Belshazzar. In fact, it was so important, I made it one of my four major points. What did God give Nebuchadnezzar last week? Do you remember? A second chance. He gave him a warning. Remember? Remember I said that dream was actually a warning to Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and God gave Nebuchadnezzar a full year to repent of his pride? He gave him a second chance. But as we look in this story, Belshazzar does not seem to be given that same second chance by God. So what's going on here? Well, the answer to that is found in this long speech that Daniel gives. We're told that when Daniel comes into Belshazzar's presence, he, he jumps into this long speech. And actually, you know what Daniel does? He reminds Belshazzar of his grandfather. He reminds him of Nebuchadnezzar. And he actually reminds him of the story that we looked at last week. Pick it up in verse 20 of this passage. Daniel says the following to Belshazzar. He says, but when his, meaning Nebuchadnezzar, but when Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was disposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. So that was last week's story. That's what we saw last week. And then look at what Daniel says next, verse 22. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Now do me a favor, please. Somehow in your Bibles, mark, underline, emphasize that phrase right there, you knew all of this, though you knew all of this. Because I believe that is the most important phrase in Daniel chapter 5. Because what is Daniel saying here? Daniel is saying that Belshazzar has been given a warning. And what was Belshazzar's warning? It was written on the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's warning. What Daniel is saying here is he is saying, Belshazzar, you are without excuse. You should have known the dangers of pride. Because it was already shown to you in the life of your grandfather. Belshazzar knew what happened to his grandfather. Probably all of Babylon knew what happened to his grandfather. And so you should have known the dangers of pride. Because you saw it in the life 
of King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think there is a principle here, brothers and sisters, that is so important that, that we need to hang on to. You know, the Bible tells us there's another reason why God allows evil on this earth. And you know what that reason is? It's actually to give people a second chance. It's to give people an opportunity to recognize their evil and to repent and turn to Him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Peter tells us that the reason why Jesus has not yet come back to this earth is because God doesn't want people to be destroyed. It's because God is giving people an opportunity to repent and to turn to him. As we said last week, our God is a God of second chances. And he wants people to come to him. But the Bible does make clear what I said earlier. That there is coming a day when those second chances will end. There is coming a day when Jesus will come back to this earth and that will mark the end of this world as we know it. And we are told in scripture that on that day, every single human being who has ever lived, they will have to stand before God. And for those who did not put their faith in Jesus in this life, for those who have rejected Jesus Christ in this life, on that moment they will have run out of second chances. And as hard as this may be to hear, for those who have rejected Jesus on that moment, in that moment, God will reject them. God will reject them. And you know what I think God may say to those who rejected him in this life? I think God may say what Daniel says to Belshazzar here. I think he may say, you knew. You knew. Or at the very least, he will say, you should have known. You should have known. I remember years ago watching an interview with a celebrity who is an atheist, doesn't believe in God. And at the end of this interview, the interviewer asked her, he said, uh, if, if, if God is real and you one day have to stand before him, what would, you, what would you say to him? And the celebrity said something like this. She said, I would say to God, God, why did you make it so hard? Why did you hide yourself? And I've been thinking about that response. And I think if someone actually said that to God at the end of time, you know what I think God might do? I, I think God might hold up the copy he has of his word in heaven. And I think he might say to that person, what do you mean I hid myself? What do you mean I hid myself? I gave you 66 books that do nothing but talk about me. I, I told you in this book how much I love you. And how I want to be in relationship with you. And I told you in this book everything that you needed to know in order to be in relationship with me. I didn't hide myself. You just didn't want to find me. You know, the Bible tells us, men and women, at the end of time, when people stand before God, that nobody will be able to say to God, well, God, I just didn't know. I just didn't know. Because our God is not a God who has hid himself. Our God is a God who has made himself and what he desires so abundantly clear. And that's why I say to those of you who are in this room right now, and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you're saying, I'm still, I'm still searching for God, I'm still looking for God, I, I want to let you know you can stop searching, you can stop looking, because he is right here. And he is calling out to you. 
He is calling out to you through his word. He is calling out to you through his son, Jesus Christ. He is calling out to you through his Holy Spirit. God is not hidden. And I believe anybody who genuinely wants to find God will be able to find him. And so I would encourage you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Make that decision right now. He is giving you a second chance. Right now, he is giving you that opportunity. But know there is coming a day when those second chances will run out. That's what this book says. And guess what? What God has written, God will accomplish. And that's why there's a challenging aspect to that truth. But you know what? There's also a comforting aspect to that truth. Because for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, you know what? What God has written, God will accomplish. What God has written, God will accomplish. That means all the good stuff in this book, all the promises in this book, they will come true as well. You know, this past week, I couldn't help but, but think about this story from Daniel's perspective. Think of Daniel chapter 5 from Daniel's perspective. Remember how this book began, men and women. Remember how it all began. It began with the darkest day in the history of the Israelite people. It began with the end of the Israelite nation, essentially as we know it. It began with these high school students being ripped from their homeland, being ripped from their families, deposited in this foreign evil empire. But then we get to the end of Daniel chapter 5, and what do we find? Daniel has outlasted them all. Daniel has outlasted King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel has outlasted King Belshazzar. Daniel has outlasted the Babylonian Empire. Daniel has outlasted some of the most powerful men that the world has ever seen. He has outlasted one of the most powerful empires that the world has ever known. As Daniel was faithful to God, what was God to Daniel? He was faithful to him. And that's what God's word says. As we are faithful to God, as we honor God, God will honor us. There is an incredible future that this book says that is in store for us and what God has written God will accomplish and I hope that gives you hope I hope that in the midst of your difficulties in the midst of the hard times some of you are say, uh, uh, facing if you are facing evil right now at the hands of another person I hope it gives you hope I hope you can cling on to the promises of God the promises of God to protect us and to vindicate us and to stand next to us evil will not win men and women evil will be defeated there is a glorious future that awaits us and guess what what God has written God will accomplish can I get an amen to that. Started preaching there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Gotta calm down a little bit. I think I was yelling a little bit. <laughs> You've just made me lose my reward in heaven, so thank you very much. And there's one final thing I want to say in closing, okay? I believe what I said earlier in this message. I believe that one of the reasons why God has, has not yet sent his son Jesus back to this earth is because God is giving people second chances. And he wants them to come to relationship with him. And as many of you know, next weekend, right? Next weekend is one of the few weekends of the year we've talked about where, where non-Christians are open to coming to church. And I just have to believe that many of us in this room God has laid someone on our heart to, 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 to invite to our service next weekend. And next weekend, we will be talking about the God of second chances. We will be talking about the way that God wants people to exist in relationship with him. 
And God may be using you to be a second chance in someone else's life. So I would encourage you, take that risk. Invite them to church. God may use you to bring someone into his family. And there is no greater privilege than that. God may use you to bring someone into his family. And there is no greater privilege than that. As we close here, would you do me a favor? Would you stand with me right now? Our worship team is going to come out and they're going to lead us, not in just one, but but two final songs with something in between. But as we we close here, I want to close exactly how we began, okay? We're going to put that phrase back on the screen. And would you repeat after me? And remember, we're in church, not in a mortuary, okay? So let's say it strong. Repeat after me what God has written. God will accomplish. accomplish. Again, what God has written. written. God will accomplish. accomplish. One more time. What God has written. God God will accomplish. accomplish. This week, let's believe that and let's take God at his word. Would you bow your heads with me, please? (laughs) Father God, we just thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you that you are a God that has not hid yourself, but you communicate with us. God, you have have made it so clear who you are and what it is that you desire, Father. And, And most of all, that you love us and you want us to be in relationship with you. And we just thank you for that, God. And Father, I pray that we would take you at your word. I pray that those in this room who are going through tough times, God, that they would see the promises that you have put in your book, God, and that they would claim those and they would cling to those, Father, and they would know the incredible future that that awaits us, Father, that that, that that would give them hope in the midst of their difficulty. And Father God, I, I know that there are so many people out there that you want to call your children who don't know you yet. And Father, you use us, your children, to reach out to them. And so, God, I pray that you would put on our hearts this week uh, people who you want to invite to our Easter services next year, week, Father. And I pray, God, that you would be gracious to those people. You would open up their hearts so that they can receive the gospel message and put their faith and their trust in you. And, God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of your word, Father. And as we close with these songs of worship, Father, I just pray, Lord, that you would, you would just feel the worship that we give you, God, that it would please you, it would glorify you, and it would come from hearts of gratitude, Father, for what you have done in our life, and uh, God, for all that you have given us. We love you so much, Father. We thank you so much, and we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.